All right, all right. Hope you guys are doing well. You okay? You awake? Ready to go? All right. Here we go, Psalm chapter four. This one's no joke. Uh, if you're new, welcome. My name is Mark. I'm a senior pastor, teaching pastor here at Village Church. Really good to have you across all of our sites. Uh, we are really jacked uh, about what God is doing at our church. And we are going through the book of Psalms, the first 41 chapters through this amazing book. It's a song book. It's a, it's a, it's a book that hits uh, a ton of stuff that's just real life. And in this Psalm, we are going to hit a, a kind of destroyed Psalm. There are seven types of psalms actually in the book of Psalms. There are hymns, laments, thanksgiving, confidence, remembrance, wisdom, and kingship. And Psalm 4 is one of lament and confidence that kind of comes together and does this thing where it moves, as we're going to see, just like life, from distress. And then if we've got the right perspective and we know the right things about God and who he is and what he's doing in our life, it moves from distress to joy, to absolute security, to a point where we can rest our head in, the, in life with all the stress and pressure in a way that actually changed us. So just listen to this psalm. Let it wash over. You're going to read all eight verses for you, and then we're just going to work through it. So it says, Psalm chapter 4, verse 1, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor turned into shame. How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is beautiful. Some of you just need to hear the beautiful movement of distress to safety and how he gets there. This is really what it's about. Um, so a couple things. First, uh, he, ta he talks like the Psalms generally do in the midst of distress and pressure. He talks to himself. Now, some of you might be, what do you mean he's talking to all the Psalms? aren't only talking to people, but they're talking to themselves. And what I mean by that, I'm reading this book right now, which goes really well with the, with the particular Psalms that we're working through, uh, called Spiritual Depression by a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a preacher uh, throughout the 40s and 50s and 60s in Britain. And uh, he was actually a doctor, a medical doctor. And during the war, so many preachers had to go off to war that he actually took over a pulpit and he began preaching. And he became what some people say when uh, church history is looked back on that Martin Martin Lloyd-Jones will be one of the greatest preachers of all time, not only in the last hundred years, but of all time preachers, because he took what he knew about the medical world, the practicality of real life, and he brought it into the scriptures and he let it live in people's lives. And he wrote a book that some people have called one of the best books in the English language called Spiritual Depression. And it starts out talking about the Psalms. And he actually says this, I love this, because this idea of talking to yourself First, um, he says, um, uh, we must talk to ourselves rather than allowing ourselves to talk to us. Now, notice the difference. We must talk to ourselves rather than <clears throat> allowing ourselves to talk to us. He says this, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? 
right? That, that literally when you wake up in the morning, you're starting to listen to all the nonsense from yesterday. You're starting to listen to the, the, the garbage. You're starting to listen to the problems, the stresses, the things that you didn't like about so-and-so. All of the things from yesterday start talking to you rather than you actually talking to yourself. And so he says, we need to say to ourselves, listen for a moment, self, I will speak to you. And then he says, the main art in spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself over what? Over someone else actually controlling you, over circumstances controlling you. You've got to preach to yourself. You have to say, self, here's the reality of the gospel. I am beloved because Jesus died for me. I am this, I am that. I have to forgive. All of this is you talking to yourself versus letting yourself talk to you. Understand that that distinction, because that's the difference between a flourishing spiritual life and one that's deadly. And so here's the reality. He not only talks to himself, though, then he talks to God. So verse one, verse, he says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. And the thing you got to understand about this prayer is that it's what's called an evening prayer. If you look at verse eight, he says, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone Oh Lord, make me dwell in safety. So he's going, I'm going to go to sleep now. This is an evening prayer. When I first became a Christian, I found this song. And every single night, I would literally take out my, it was called the New Jerusalem Bible. It was this thick. I have no idea where I got it. And I would go down on my floor in my bedroom at night and I would light candles, all right? Because I wanted to be like John Calvin or something, all right? And I would sit around and I would read this prayer every single night. Answer me, I call, O God of my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. And I'd go on and on about the idea that here I am now, laying down in my bed, as verse four talks about, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep all right, I want to sleep in peace in the midst of the difficulties of my life, over the distress of my day. And yet here I am at the end of my day and I'm praying. And what I need to get through tomorrow is a perspective that everything that happened in my day, all the stress, all the nonsense is actually seen through a filter where I can have total confidence in you. That's what he's trying to do. And so it's like putting 3D glasses on and then you're experiencing all of life through this particular filter where you've got these glasses on where you're going, everything that happened to me today, as I go to sleep now, I got to see it in light of you. So that's what I was doing. So he says these beautiful things. Answer me when I call. Oh God of my righteousness. You have given me relief, verse one, when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. So here's what he does. First thing, he says, answer me. I want you to answer me. 33 times the word prayer is used in the Psalms. And he says, I want you to actually answer me. I want you to hear me. Now, here's the fascinating fact about we need to not hear. He assumes that God doesn't always hear him. Now, I want to freak you out for a minute because I think you guys are too comfortable in life, in your Christianity. All right. I think you think God always hears you. But the Bible rocks us a bit, all right? It doesn't give us this Canadian nicety thing, all right, where everyone's, hey, God is only this and he's only that. And don't worry, everyone, we're Canadian, so sorry. And everybody's so nice all the time. 
And don't worry about it. You just throw up some prayers. God always hears you. God always answers you. Let me, let me mess you up a little bit for, like, for, 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 for your life. Listen, two passages that haunt me constantly. Isaiah chapter one, verse 15 says this. He's talking to Israel, who's been totally unfaithful to him. And he says this, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, listen, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Okay, so he says, you have not done justice. So when you bring me sacrifices, when you bring me worship, when you bring me prayers, here's the crazy part, I'm not gonna listen to you, right? Issue number one. Then James chapter one says this. Uh, fascinating, actually, in, in the book of James, he goes through the life of righteous people in chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, faith is connected to works. And then by the time he gets to chapter five, he says this, last chapter in James. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick. And then he says this in verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And so Isaiah says, you've been unjust and I'm not going to listen to you. James says that a prayer of a righteous person works, meaning there's this relationship between God answering prayer and righteousness. He's right. This is God going, listen, I'm not just, don't, you can't live your life as a hypocrite, as a sinful person who's full of sin in their life and then expect me to come in power and answer your prayer. That's hypocrisy. That's not the way this works. I'm not, listen, we think of God sometimes as the I dream of genie lady, all right? Where the genie's in the bottle, all right? Which was obviously that show was the male dream, right? Because genie's just in there and whenever we want her, we just rub the little bottle. She's like, Brick! and then she goes, what do you need, master? <laughs> all right, that's legit. I showed my wife that show. Like, what's up, baby? Right? This would make for a great marriage. But that was the dream of the 60s, right? Rub a bottle whenever you need her to come out. She comes out. You ask her what she wants. She calls you master. This is legit. This is the, okay. So many of us treat God like that. I'm sitting over here in a bottle waiting for some attention. I hope you give me some attention. I hope you just, you know, and once in a while you talk to me and then I'll just do whatever you want. And then you get to sit and wonder why I don't show up and ask me questions and put me on trial for the pain of the world. And you don't pay any attention to me until you need me. You give me some attention. Then you move on. Why do you think you don't have any power? That's what he's saying. You want power? The prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. You want power, you gotta get holiness, right? Village Church, we gotta get right with God if we want him to show up in power. We can't just sit, some of you, listen, this is the secret. This is the thing that you're gonna need to hear today. You are hoping God shows up in power to save your family, to save your kids, to save your, your coworkers, to save our city, to do a crazy big move of God. You're wanting that, but you don't try to go after the holiness 
that God is saying it's connected to. Maybe God is waiting on us. Maybe there's unaddressed sin in the camp. Over and over and over again. You know when God shows up in power? It's not when we got our guy in the White House or we got our guy in Ottawa in Parliament. It's not when you get political leaders that have Christian values. You want to know when God shows up in power? Study revivals all the way back to the Old Testament. You know when he shows up in power? Like supernatural power where you start to see amazing things every time? It's when the people of God have no power and they get marginalized. It's Egypt. It's, it's, it's Babylon. It's the Roman Empire. <clears throat> It's S, what is, look at, you, I mean, we just go through a whole study of this. Look at Joseph. Joseph is, is totally a disaster. He's a mess. He's in prison. And what happens? He has no power. He's marginalized. What happens? He starts to dream dreams. Daniel starts to dream dreams. And he's got a prayer life. Go read Daniel 9. Go read Ezra 9. What does Esther do when she has no power? She calls for prayer and fasting. Prayer, fasting, the supernatural. You want to know what happens when culture becomes more secular? God shows up more supernaturally. That's what happens. So all of us are like, hey, the world's turning secular. What an opportunity for you to get a prayer life. What an opportunity for you to start to see miracles happen. Martin Lloyd-Jones in 1959 looked out at the landscape of London and the UK and said, listen, guys, you want to see this post-Christian culture start to grow and what the church is supposed to do in the midst of it. He says, take the advice of Jesus. When the demon wouldn't come out of the person, he says, this kind only comes out through prayer and fasting. Some of you have no prayer life, no fasting life. You're bemoaning the, the, the grow of a post-Christian culture. Every single time that happens in the history of revivals, this is when the supernatural stuff starts showing up. Village, we should expect the supernatural. We should expect healing. We should expect God to speak and move. And if that's not happening in your life, here's the question. Do you know him? Are you, you know who he comes to? The hungry. Are you hungry? Answer me. When I call, that's hunger. Oh God, my righteousness. It means I don't know what to do right now. Now here's the second part I love about this. He speaks to himself, yes. He speaks to God because that's the only thing to do when you're in exile. It's the only thing to do when you're spiritually depressed. It's the only thing to do when you're in the desert is to react through prayer and hunger for him to such a point where he shows up in supernatural power and starts to speak and do amazing things in your life and then people wake up and they start to pay attention and people start to come to know him. Now, here's the other piece of this. I love this because this guy is being a little sassy, which is not my style. Answer me, answer me. Look at how bossy he's being. Answer me. This is what we talked about when we hit Psalm 3. He's got this sassiness. He's got this, I, do this, do this. Break my friend's teeth or my enemy's teeth. I want you to do this. I want you to do that. And he's going, look what he says. Answer me. Answer me. 
He just lays it out. He's real. He's not type A. He's a, well, we got to do this. And then we got to do this. He's being real. He's being authentic. You know, in Luke chapter 11, when Jesus teaches on prayer and he talks about that woman who keeps coming and we call her the persistent person. And she keeps coming and bothering the king to such a point that finally the king goes, fine, I'm sick of listening to you. I'm just going to give you what you want. And he actually puts that up as a model of prayer. Some of you, we just throw stuff out once and we go, I don't know, God didn't answer my prayer. In the parable Jesus teaches in Luke 11, she comes and she comes. We say she's persistent because we don't want to be mean. In the Greek, the word that we translate as persistent, when he says this woman, she was being persistent. And so it's actually the word rude or shamelessly, she had shameless audacity. Shameless audacity to show up and ask these things of God. She was rude. That's what he's doing. Answer me, oh God. I, you better answer me. Remember Psalm 3? I want you to hurt my enemies. He's just being raw. He's being real. He's laying it out. This is Jesus in Gethsemane. You think Jesus in Gethsemane went, okay, I'm going to speak. Father, I shall acknowledge now, and now I shall do confess. Now I shall do. He's not going through some systematic. You, he's in the garden. He starts to sweat drops of blood because of his anxiety. And he's praying, and he says, Father, take this cup from me. I don't want this cup anymore. I don't want to do this mission anymore. I don't want to suffer on a cross anymore. I don't want to do it. You think he was doing that monotone in the King James? God, please take this cupeth from me. I don't want to do this missioneth anymore. No, man, that guy, he was pleading, yelling, sweating, freaking out. Are you afraid to pray like that? Get sassy. Throw a hashtag on that right there. Get sassy. Your prayer life should be sassy. Answer me. I got enemies who need teeth that need to be kicked in. For those of you who aren't here, Psalm 3, go read Psalm 3. That's what he says, right? So we're like, what is going on here? That sounds blasphemous. That's the Bible. Now, underline, underline that word, answer me, because you know why you can be sure he's going to answer you? You, you want to you see the beauty of Jesus Christ? You know why you can know he's going to answer you? Because he didn't answer Jesus for you. See, if a righteous life means he answers you, you're never going to be answered because you don't have a righteous life. Your life's a wreck. You are sinful. And if you're new to village, I'm sorry, but you're going to hear that every week because you are. You're narcissistic, turned in on yourself. It's all about you. You're by definition sinful. And therefore, never should a prayer be answered for you. But here's the beautiful thing of the gospel. There's a man who came, his name was Jesus, 2,000 years ago, who was righteous, and his prayer didn't get answered. Because he asked that the cup of judgment would pass from him and go to somebody else, because he didn't want to do this anymore. And when he was up on the cross... He said, my God, my God, what? Why have you what? Forsaken me. You didn't listen to my prayer. You didn't answer my prayer. 
I'm the most righteous person that's ever lived. If anybody should have a prayer answered, it's me and you ignored me. And that is why he'll answer you. Because Jesus took your place. He took the place of the one who didn't get answered so that you would get answered. You know when Jesus is talking about prayer and he's like, remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he's like, uh, hey, you got to ask God for stuff. And then he goes, uh, you, if your child came to you and asked you for a fish and asked you for an egg, would you give them a snake? Would you give them a scorpion? And then he says, no, I, a good father would never do that. And then he says, you being evil, you wouldn't even do that. So imagine what the heavenly father, see, here's the beautiful thing about the gospel. When you're reading that story, see, when you get to the end, Jesus Christ asks his father for a fish and he gets a scorpion. He gets a snake. God, give me the fish. Give me the egg. And the father goes, no, you get the snake. You get the scorpion. You get the cross. You get the suffering. Why? So that I can give everybody else the fish and the egg. So I can give everybody else the blessing that you deserve, but you're going to take wrath in their place. This is why 2 Corinthians talks about the idea of what Martin Luther calls the great exchange. He who knew no sin became sin, became sin so that we who are sinful might become the righteousness of God. This is his whole point. Answer me. Why is he going to answer you? Because he didn't answer Jesus. And then he says this, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. I'm going to come back to distress. I want to land on distress and I want to introduce you to a new friend of mine in a little bit. Be gracious to me. Underline that word, be gracious to me. That's the word grace. Grace is undeserved favor, right? It's the thing that you, you are caught, like, like I went across the border uh, a few weeks ago with my family and we're in, uh, we're in uh, Blaine and we're going to get something from the bank and we hit this like four-way stop, which I guess was a four-way stop, but I didn't know that. And I kind of rolled up to it and I kind of stopped whatever. And then I kind of kept rolling and then, a cop car pulled me over. I got my kids and the guy comes up, right? I'm being a good role model. I'm, yes, officer. All right, he's like, hey, you just rolled through that four-way. And my, my argument, I'm not saying I was ever going to be a lawyer. My argument was, um, I didn't, I'm from Canada. <laughs> At which point, without even hesitating, he goes, they don't have stop signs in Canada? And I'm like, gosh, good point. <laughs> I was going to lie and say, no, have you ever been? Most Americans have never been here. Even people five minutes across the border. I mean, I love you Americans. People right across the border, they think we're riding polar bears around up here. Right? Just killing and eating. Rah, rah. Rah, they don't have stop signs in my Eskimo world, right? in my igloo. Right? That's what they think. We're eating whale blubber and hanging out with the revenant up here. But they got Starbucks. They can see us. Anyways, love you guys. So point being, and I, so he, he should have given me a ticket. He had me on, according to the data, I rolled past the stop sign. But he looked at me, he said, it's okay, Merry Christmas. Left. And my girls are like, Daddy, what's wrong with you? 
He had you dead to rights and he let you off. That's what this guy's saying. Be gracious to me. I know you've caught me red-handed. I know there's no good reason to love me. I know there's no good reason to save me. But please, just because you're good, let me off. That's what he's saying. And then he says, uh, Oh men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? That's verse two. How long shall my honor be turned into shame? And notice he starts addressing men now, like, like people. You people have caused me so much distress and circumstance in my life, he's saying, that my honor, my reputation is being in shambles. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like people are cutting you down or taking away your honor? This is what this psalm is dealing with. It's beautiful. And so he's saying, man, I can't even believe this. How long shall my honor? Like, like I was um, reading, I shouldn't do this, but I was on Facebook. One of our sermons went out and it was a controversial sermon and people were online and they're debating it. And there's like a hundred comments underneath the Facebook thing. And at one point a guy goes, oh, I don't like this guy's teaching. A guy who spends that much money on his clothes and his hair has no legitimacy in my mind. And I'm like, wow, bro. I shop at H&M, I get my hair cut at Tommy Guns. Shut up. Some of you are like messed, like get a life. You're taking this, and this is when I read these Psalms. I'm like, oh man, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? The honor of my $22 shoes shall now be shamed all over the internet. My $24 haircut. Ah! All right, anyway, that's my own stuff. So how long, then he says, how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? We love vain words. We love as a culture seeking after lies. We don't want the truth. We want what makes us happy. We want what lets us get through Thanksgiving and Christmas dinner without fighting each other. We will adopt lies in our life to make everything comfortable. He calls you out. If that's you and you're here, this psalm just made you uncomfortable. How long are you going to go after lies so that you can be comfortable in life? This is what he's saying. And then he says, verse 3, but know, underline this, but know that the Lord, know that the Lord, do you do you know, the word know here is, is the Hebrew word for um, like, like knowing, like Adam knew Eve, okay? Like an intimacy, an experiential knowledge. So there's this thing called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral, which is basically epistemology, which says, how do you know anything? How do you learn anything? How do you come know? You know it through four ways. Scripture, reason, tradition, and experience. Scripture, reason, tradition, and experience are the way you come to believe anything. And I think sometimes some of you know a lot of things about God because the Bible tells you through tradition, you come to church, you learn some stuff. But my question is, do you know anything about God from experience? That's what this Hebrew word, I'm talking about you experienced him. You felt him. You saw him show up. Look, I, this is like you've been married to someone for 30 years. Think about your marriage. You know them. I know Aaron, right? I know Aaron likes a certain amount of ice cubes in her cup or she'll reject when I bring her water, okay? All right? This woman is like a pharaoh, right? I show up in the bed as a nice guy with ice coming out of my glass, all right? And I put it down, honey, I got you some water. Like, in my brain, I'm like, what husband is this good? None. Not you, right? None of you guys. I'm legit. 
She'll look through that glass and see that there's only six cubes in there. Be like, I don't want it. You can take it. What do you mean? There's not enough ice. <clears throat> right? That's what I know about my wife. I know she loves certain ice cubes. I know she can't touch a napkin or a paper towel and eat food at the same time. Not going to happen. I know the potatoes can't touch her meat on a plate. She used the word divorce once when I let that happen. Right? Um, I know, okay, I know this woman is deathly afraid of cats. Like, deathly. Like, if a cat comes like this, it, she will run the other way for you. I know that um, uh, she, she would rather pull her own fingernails out than watch Star Wars or Lord of the Rings again. We dated for five years. I took her to each one of those Lord of the Rings movies five times each. She still doesn't know who Frodo is, has no idea what the plot's about, She's trying to figure out where the lightsabers come in. All right, doesn't know what's going on. I, she's, I, I know this woman. I know she thinks Hallmark stories and Christmas movies are real. She thinks they're based on true stories, right? I'm like, no, honey, we're just walking through Ladner. They're just shooting that. It's August. That's not real snow. That's not a real lumberjack. That's not a girl who was in New York at a big organization and office and got in a tough moment and had to come back to her small town and fall in love with the guy with the beard. It's not real, right? So I know all that about her. The question is, how did I get to know it? She never wrote me a letter. She never wrote any of it down. I experienced her in life for the last 20 years, over 20 years. Now, do you know him? Galatians 3 says, you know how you define whether you're saved? Galatians 3 verse 1. Have you experienced the Spirit? Have you experienced him? Do you know stuff about him because you've experienced? My, uh, when Erin was nine months pregnant with our first daughter, she got hit by a car. She was out like this. She went for a walk. She was working. Car come around a corner and hit her. And we were like, four hours before we got a heartbeat because we went out and we got the thing and put it in. Oh, it didn't work. Went to the other thing. Oh, okay, that, this is broken. You got to go to another hospital. Finally, after four hours, got the sound, got the thing up. Okay, heard a heartbeat. Oh my goodness. I saw God show up and I was pleading, answer me, please answer me, please answer me. And I saw his grace in my life. And sometimes I still look at my oldest daughter. I'm like, man, my life could be without her. But God was gracious, God was gracious, God was gracious. See, I learned something about him experientially in that moment. And so he says, verse four, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer on your beds. He's trying to say, do you sit in, see, in his terms, um, on your bed, that's the bedroom. That's the private place. That's the place where no one sees what goes on, right? When you have people over, you don't tend to go up to your bedroom and hang out, right? That's where you throw all your junk when people are coming over. He's like, get that, I don't know, get all that coat rack and throw it in here, right? It's like, boom. You don't tend to bring people into your bedroom. You bring them into the kitchen and the dining room and you hang out in the living room. You don't tend to, because that's the intimate place. What he's trying to get at is, who are you when no one's looking, when the door's closed and you're in your bedroom all alone and no one comes into that private space, that space that is never talked about publicly, do you actually know him and love him and experience him in those moments, in the privacy of your life? Uh, Tim Keller says, you wanna know what your idol is? You wanna know what your idol is? Here's your idol. That thing you do and think about when you're left alone with nothing to do for a certain amount of time. And then he says, Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. 
There are many who say, look at verse six. There are many who say, who will show us some good? I love this. Who will show us some good? You know what he's saying? These, these are people shopping for a God and they're saying, which God of the pantheon of different gods in ancient Israel, among all the options, the Egyptian ones, the Assyrian ones, the Babylonian, which one will do for me some good stuff? Which God will serve me because that's the God I'm going to serve? This is classic modern Christianity. This is people shopping for a church. Oh, which church is going to bring me some good which one has a men's ministry and a women's ministry and a youth ministry? I remember when we first started Village Church, I was reflecting today as I was watching a bunch of people volunteer. Thank you for volunteering. Thank you for making this happen. Week in and week out, set up, tear down, greeting, village kids, worship ministries, community group leadership, the teaching, prayer, all the crazy amazing things you guys do to make this happen. When we started out, we were 16 people and then 50 and then 100. And I remember when you're, when you're that, you're just hungry for people with jobs and who have a life, who are stable, all right? You don't wanna just build it on 20 year olds. You love them and they bring passion and energy. <clears throat> but these people would come in with families and they'd have kids and they'd come in and I'd be like, oh my gosh, I need those guys. He looks like he has a functional job that he's been able to keep for a week. Elder, all right, whatever. And so they'd walk in, I'd be like, hey. And they go, do you have a youth ministry? I'm like, no. What, do I have a youth ministry? What do you even, I can barely, we can barely keep the lights on. Oh, okay, moving on. And I'm like, no, 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 you start one. This is what happens. Do you know why we preach through biblical books verse by verse by verse? Because I don't want to give you what you want. I want to give you what you need. And one guy likes it. <laughs> it's like, I'd rather what I want. What's with this what I need nonsense? <laughs> and we were like, from the beginning, we're like, you know what? This might not work to go through Matthew for four years, but even if we're 100 people, let's in a consumeristic culture where everyone's asking the paradigmatic controlling question, who will show us some good? Let's give them what they need and see what happens. And this is what happened. People started meeting the God through the scripture, meeting God through the scriptures over and over and over again. And he showed us some good in the person and work of Jesus, whether he ever shows us good again. That's the point. And then he says this, look, let's land this and I'm gonna introduce you to my friend. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. They're eating uh, bread, they're drinking wine, they're hanging out, they're, they're, they're having a great time. In peace, I will lie, uh, you give me greater joy than that. <clears throat> so much so that in peace, underline that word, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Make me dwell in safety. Here's the journey of this psalm. Distress, pain, difficulty, questions to joy and contentment and safety in who God is. So I want to introduce you to my friend, Debbie. Come on out, Debbie. Why don't you, uh, she's scared, <clears throat> so why don't you just give her a hand and welcome Debbie. Come on out here. <clears throat> <clears throat> 
You okay? I'm good, Mark. Good, good, good. So, Debbie, uh, I met you this week. Um, why did I meet you this week? Um, just hold it up to your mouth so they can hear you. You met me because I've been coming here for just a couple of months, and I just knew that as soon as I heard your, your sermons and the messages you were delivering that I had to meet you. Why? What's going on in your life that, that, that brought, why did I even hear about you? Because I have been diagnosed with incurable cancer, bone cancer, and I'm in end-stage liver failure. Um, I was given four months to live by my doctors five months ago. Hmm. So I'm kind of on borrowed time, but... And I got an email. You got an email from some friends of mine unbeknownst to me. <laughs> And they said, uh, you're on Debbie's bucket list. Yep. <laughs> Debbie, I've never been on someone's bucket list before, to be honest with you. I, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> so they're like, hey, I know it's busy, whatever, but uh, you're on, and, and, and so how did I, what's that? Like, they said it was on the top of the list. They said she, she left her bucket list around. And then her friend saw it at the top. It was Meet Mark Clark. I'm like, oh, that's so nice. <laughs> only, it's a first for me. Well, there's a couple things on my bucket list. I'd love to go to Jerusalem, but I don't yeah. think I'm going to make it there. Oh, oh. <laughs> so it was a great joy. You came into my office, yep. and um, they surprised you. Yes, they did. And we hung out for an hour. Yep. And um, here's what I saw in you. Uh, here you are. Uh, a month past your uh, deadline from a doctor's perspective. Uh, you have bone cancer, liver failure. Um, and yet, guys, she was the most joyous person <laughs> that I met this entire week, this entire month. I said, honestly, this was the best meeting. Not to say I don't love our staff. Love meeting <laughs> with you guys. Uh, the best meeting I had this month was you. Thank because you. You had so much joy. Um, you were laughing, you were telling jokes, and I'm like, how, how, how is this possible that you know, the point of bringing you out here, what connected with me when I was hanging out with you was, you have this distress that he starts with and this safety and joy that he ends with. That's his journey in this psalm. Why do you have so much joy? What's, well, how did you get this perspective? In, when I was first, I've, I've been diagnosed with cancer three times. This is my third time. And when I was re-diagnosed in 2011, um, I was just a very, very, very new Christian. And so I, I asked the questions like, God, why me, why me, why me? And then the answer I got back was, why not you? Mm. And, you know, so I just figure I'm here for a reason. And Tell I'm going through this for a reason. And when I got a bit into your story, you shared um, that your life has not been easy. And when no. I... Tell us a little bit about your, your story. Well, um, I was first diagnosed with cancer when I was 17 years old. And I was five months pregnant. And um, tell us I, about the family you were born into. I was I was adopted, and um, 
Um, when I was 13, actually, they, you know, I got into a little bit of trouble um, with some shoplifting and stuff. Mm. And um, my adoptive parents relinquished their rights, and I was brought up as a ward of the court. So the government was my parents, basically. And uh, I ended up pregnant at 17 with cancer. Um, and I was given the choice of um, having uh, chemotherapy and risk losing the baby or not having surgery and I was going to die. And so, of course, we went with surgery. Thankfully, my baby was born healthy four months later. I tried to raise her for a year, but I was still too sick. I was only 17. So I gave her up for adoption. But uh, when she was 26 years old, we were reunited. Mm. So I've had a relationship with her now. For mm. She's 32 now. It's beautiful. Yes. And I've had a, another child since then. And yeah. He's 24. Right. And he's a special needs child. Mm. He has autism and ADHD, but he's the absolute highlight of my life. <laughs> he's such an amazing kid. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And so tell us your faith journey. Well, um, growing up, there was never, you know, my, my parents, I guess they're atheists. They don't really believe in anything. <laughs> my sister actually is, um, she's quite a, quite a bit older than me. But um, when she was 17, she kind of sort of ran away from home and went to Didsbury, Alberta, to Mountain View Bible College and became a missionary. And for the past 30 years, she's been a missionary in Italy. Mm. And, uh, but you became a Christian when those people took you, the people that were missionaries. Well, no, I became a Christian because I actually fell into um, drug addiction. Right. And uh, in 2011, mm. I was a heroin addict for two years. Mm -hmm. And um, I ended up in a recovery house and uh, eventually ended up running that recovery house as the office manager. But um, yes, yeah, it's, it's amazing as you told your story, you're just so selfless. Like everywhere you go, I went to recovery house, took the heroin, got well, and realized administratively these guys are a disaster. I'll just take over. And it's like your selflessness. Of do, six houses. The thing when. The reason I wanted you guys to hear a bit of the story is because as I was talking to Debbie, the, the amount of pain and suffering you've been through in your life. Uh, you gave birth to uh, a stillborn child. Yes, I did. Four when, years after my, my daughter was born, I had a 38-week stillborn. He died during delivery. You were raised in the foster system, abandoned by your parents, have an autistic son, had to give a child up for adoption, have had cancer three times, you're now 50 years old. And during my first, my first cancer surgery, um, I had to have a blood transfusion and was given tainted blood and contracted hepatitis C, and that's why my liver is failing. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I looked at you when you were in my office and I just said, how do you deal with... Like, when we look at your story, we're like, why do people, and I wanted to say this to you, we asked the question, why do people go through so much pain? Why are there some people that just seem 
to get more than the rest of us. Why not? In regard to pain and <laughs> suffering. And one of the theologians I was reading was talking about the idea that they're, they're strong enough to bear it. I and don't seeing, always feel that strong. But I know. So you're 50 years old. I just turned 50 on yesterday. Actually. Oh, really? Happy yes. birthday. Give it up. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, you're 50 years old. You're at the end of your life, barring God healing you, and we, and we believe that he can. We're trying for a three-year plan. <laughs> right. Uh, what would be words of advice for us who are looking at your story? I mean, the it's joy never, that you just, have is just, incredible. I, just, I, just, uh, I don't even know if it's words, words of advice, but I just know that since I've become a Christian that I know that, you know, now that I know that my life is going to be shortened quite a bit, that I know where I'm going, and it's such an amazing place. Hmm. And I'm going to be there to get everybody else's mansions ready with welcome home signs. <laughs> I love your perspective. <laughs> Let me just pray for you. Father, we are grateful that we have psalms like this that take us from distress and pain and agony to joy and safety. And as Debbie and I were talking the other day, the beautiful part of the gospel is not that it says that we're not going to die. It's that we're safe in dying. That's the perspective that Debbie brought into my life this week. She so knows you, she's not afraid. And that's because, Jesus, you not only died for her, but you rose again to give her life and assurance. And I pray that all of us can see in her the, 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 the symbol, literally, of a human being walking around that symbolizes this psalm in a very special way. The safety when she lies down at night because of what you've done. The joy that you provide through the distress and through the pain because who you are. Lord God, use her life in a powerful way to encourage us. In Jesus' great name we pray, amen. Why don't we give it up for Debbie? Thank you so much.